Hi there everyone, welcome back to Hits 21, where me, Rob, me, Andy, and me, Livy, all look back at every single UK number one of the 21st century from January 2000 right through to the present day. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us over on Twitter. We are at Hits21UK, that is at Hits21UK. And you can email us too, just send it on over to Hits21podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us again. We are currently looking back at the year 2003, and oh, I tell you, on this podcast, it's Christmas every three months. It's another Christmas special. This time we'll be covering the race, a very, very hotly contested race, for Christmas number one in 2003. I've been looking forward to this episode for quite a while for a few reasons, which will hopefully become clear over the next hour and a bit. Before we get ahead to this week's episode, we're just going to take a look back at last week, at the week that was, and there was a clear poll winner on both the Spotify and Twitter polls. So, Congratulations to Will Young, and leave right now. Um, what? Are, uh, yes, a, a I'm ridiculous. So shocked. How changes didn't win, but Ozzy um, <laughs> <Aussie> was fucked. <laughs> Shannon. <laughs> yeah. So well done to Will for winning our final song of the week of uh, 2003. Because there's only one song that gets to number one in this week's episode, so there will be no vote as usual. So, on to this week's episode, big Christmas episode, so the format's going to be a little different, as always, but it's always the same at the beginning. We're going to give you some news headlines from around the time that the songs in this episode, or the song in this episode, was at number one in the UK. On Christmas Day, NASA loses contact with its space probe, the Beagle 2, which had been due to land on Mars. The probe would only be able to survive its first night on Mars if it could recharge its batteries, but without contact, NASA had no idea of its whereabouts. Beagle 2 wasn't heard from again until it was inadvertently spotted in photographs taken by another space probe sent to Mars in January 2015. That's so lovely. That's so lovely. <laughs> it is a little bit adorable, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Getting all happy about inanimate objects surviving the harsh winds of Mars. <laughs> makes me feel like, um, it, it feels like Wally. Like this, yeah. this little guy out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, in less lovely news, um, it's announced that 153,000 divorces were finalised in the UK during 2003. Meanwhile, car sales reach a record high of 2.6 million sales. I wonder if uh, there's any midlife crises that are kind of responsible for both things. Uh, but, uh, yeah. And also, the DVD becomes the dominant format in the British home video market for the first time, accounting for more than 70% of total home video sales over the last 12 months. Yeah, that rings true. 2003, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's the last time I remember buying a VHS. And the United States government orders all foreign airlines to deploy armed sky marshals on flights into America that are deemed, quote, a risk. Some EU countries strongly oppose the measure, and talks held in January 2004 resulted in the Bush administration softening its position. So, that's the news headlines out of the way. Usually at this moment in time, I would be giving the box office update, but there's nothing to update you on. 
Um, I'd normally be looking for stories in TV or pop music, but it's a pretty quiet end to 2003. So we're going to go ahead and go across the channel for a brief visit with Lizzie in the States, and then Andy's going to crack on with some TV stuff, and then Lizzie's going to run down the games of the year and the toys of the year and whatnot. So, Lizzie, you said you had one number one left of uh, 2003, I think, on the US album chart. So go ahead. I do. Yeah. Yeah. um, The US Christmas number one album is Soulful by American Idol winner Ruben Studdard. Oh, Ruben. Yeah, Ruben. This is his Sorry for 2004. It stayed at number one for one week in the US and was certified platinum, but presumably wasn't released in the UK as there are no chart figures for it. Sorry, Ruben. Um... You might have also noticed, um, if you don't skip these segments, that is, that I've stopped doing the year-end list mentions in my rundowns, as I figured I'd do the year-end top 10 singles for 2003 on this episode instead. So, before I jump in, would either of you like a guess at what will be the number one? Is this the number one single in America of 2003? Yes, it is. Okay, mm. I'm going to go with Baby Boy by Beyonce and Sean Paul, because I remember you mentioning that a lot. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, same guess, yeah. Okay, well, um, from what I can see, we have one, two... We only have two songs that we've... No, three songs that have been number one in the UK, two that we've actually covered. You probably know what that means, but... Okay. Anyway, in at number ten, we have Bring Me to Life by Evanescence. Oh. At number nine, we have Picture by Kid Rock featuring Cheryl Crow. At number eight, we have Miss You by Aaliyah. Okay. Mm -hmm. At number seven, we have Right There by Chingy. (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a tune. At number six, we have Unwell by Matchbox 20. Wow. Okay. Okay. Number five, When I'm Gone, Three Doors Down. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Number four, Crazy in Love, Beyonce. Hey. Okay, yeah. And number three, it's Get Busy by Sean Paul. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yep. And number two, it's Ignition by Robert Sylvester Kelly. And so at number mm. one, you were both wrong, it's In the Club by 50 Cent. Ah, oh, of course. Yes. Yeah, I forgot that completely. Yeah, yeah and just oh, on that gosh. note, the best performing album of 2003 in the US was, of course, Get Rich or Die Trying by 50 Cent. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, well done. Well done, 50. Um, Andy, a big year for Christmas TV, apparently, based on your messages that you've sent to us this week. So (laughs) go ahead with your TV segment. I don't know if I'd describe it as a big year rather than just a year that I have found interesting because I think of all the Christmas TV offerings that we've covered so far, this is the one that's the most of its time. There's some stuff here that you really would be astonished to hear was making it to the Christmas primetime slots um, on British TV. So I'll reserve judgment on the quality of it. I don't really mean anything by that, but, you know, draw your own conclusions. Um, Over on BBC One, Christmas Eve's main offering is the EastEnders Christmas Party, (laughs) in which the (laughs) cast of EastEnders, led by recent number two hit Shane Ritchie, and including Jill Halfpenny and Pam St. Clement, perform songs in Albert Square, along with celebrity guests including Suggs, Lulu, Liberty X, and Richard E. Grant. Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> it sounds quite funny. I'll have to dig this out. Um, on Christmas Day, the main highlight is the final of the three Only Fools and Horses specials. Um, oh, God. Yeah. But that's followed by Posh and Bex's Big Impression, which is a full hour edition of Alistair McGowan's Big Impression that is just Posh and Bex's Imagined Christmas. I mean, wow. Oh, my God. What, Jesus. Yeah. What were we going through? otherwise the big film premiere on BBC is Stuart Little and Boxing Day also sees the TV premiere of Mulan a banger of a film there Um, Boxing Day and New Year's Day also see the final two episodes of The Office broadcast which I'm sure you'll remember very well Rob oh yeah yes yeah on ITV so Christmas Eve on ITV gives us something on a similar theme wait for it it's a 90 minute program at 9pm entitled The Real Beckhams, which follows Posh and Bex through their recent trip to Spain. 90 minutes of that at Christmas. More Beckhams. We were really having a moment there, weren't we? We were. Christmas Day's big feature is the first and only attempt at World Idol, where winners and memorable contestants from different editions of the Idol International Franchise, they come together for a sort of Champion of Champions competition. It's very much like Eurovision, but with no original songs. Um, So not that much like Eurovision. Um, Our entry was Will Young, who sang Light My Fire. Um, The US entered their winner, Kelly Clarkson, who performed You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Will did well, he came fifth, um, but the contest was won by Norway's Kurt Nilsson, who performed Beautiful Day by U2. For some reason, World Idol was never repeated. Um, I'm not sure why. Anyway, um, over in the land of soaps, there's a big Christmas reveal in Coronation Street when Tracy Barlow reveals that Steve McDonald is the father of her baby, not Roy Cropper, as previously believed. You had to be there to understand that one. Um, (laughs) On EastEnders, it's a very, very rare thing. It's a happy Christmas on the square. As Kat and Alfie get married, despite a last-minute hitch where it's revealed that Alfie's divorce from his previous marriage hasn't been finalised, but all is well, somehow, in the end, and it ends with a party outside in the snow. Um, A second Albert Square party, two days on the run there. And on Emmerdale, it's a quiet but sad Christmas where Trisha Dingle decides that she can't forgive her husband Marlon for his affair and leaves him. Another item to mention... Um, you may remember that our special guest from earlier this year, Brian Caprom, discussed a Christmas special from this year that he appeared on. Um, he had a starring role in, actually, and that busted Christmas for Everyone, in which the boys' <laughs> the boys' instruments are kidnapped by Brian Capron's mysterious mall Santa, and they must follow a trail of clues and special guests, including Pete Waterman, um, before they find their guitars at a surprise party that's been arranged to thank them for all their hard work this year. Oh, um, oh. yeah. That special aired on ATV on the 23rd of December and, as far as I can tell, has never been repeated. Um, so, yeah, I'll have to give that a watch. Meanwhile, Queen Elizabeth II's Christmas message emphasised the need to support those who are alone or separated from their families at Christmas, including the armed forces who are in Afghanistan and Iraq at this time. Channel 4 went for a very different thing, though, with the alternative Christmas message. Um, That was given by Barry and Michelle Seaborn, a couple made famous for their appearance on Wife Swap. 
So, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> Something very different there. So it's a very mixed picture this year with some good stuff like The Office and, you know, maybe if it's your sort of thing, Only Fools and Horses, but a lot of trash this year. It was not a vintage TV year. So there you go. There's your TV Christmas. Hope you enjoy it. I probably didn't. <laughs> God. Yeah, not a not a vintage year, really. I was, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't know when it's going to happen, but one of these years that comes by, I'm going to remember every second of it, and I'm yeah. going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, I have no recollection of a 90-minute documentary about the Beckhams in Spain, because I think this is about six months after Beckham signed for Real Madrid as part of their whole Galacticos ah, probably that. FC yeah, yeah. thing. But, but still, bloody hell, 90 minutes on the Christmas weekend. No. Maybe they're trying to do the Osbournes, like, you know, let's follow the Beckhams, <laughs> the Beckhams. instead. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And then you uh, find you know... out that Beckham's, David Beckham is just too normal. Like, he's just he's too normal to make a TV series out of, I think. He's like, not the most dynamic chap, yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> no, I think he, you know, a bit of a bad boy in the 90s, but then very much cooled down and calmed down and tried to uh, sort out his image uh, yeah. in the uh, mid-2000s. But thank you very much, Andy, for that TV roundup. Lizzie, it's um, time for that guessing game again, where you have, you ask us, like, oh, do you think the best games were? Me and Andy guess, and we're sort of close, I but not quite. For, yeah. yeah, so have you got video games and toys for us? Yeah, I'll go through the toys first. Um, so we've got the Toy Retail Association Awards for 2003. Um First off, Company of the Year goes to Flair. I have no idea what they made. Okay. Board Game of the Year is Cranium by Recreation. Oh, oh. It is right, pretty okay. good, Cranium. Yeah. I like Cranium. Yeah. Uh, Girls' Toy of the Year is Bratz. I think this oh. one last year as well. Mm. Yeah, Big, big time for Bratz. Big time for Bratz. With a Z, for those who are uninitiated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Boys' Toy of the Year is Turtles. I'm assuming that's... Um, Teenage Mutant oh, Hero, yeah, just yeah. actual turtles. Just yeah. turtles. Just turtles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that kid who says, "I like turtles." I like turtles. <laughs> uh, the creative toy of the year is Badget by Bandai. Not anyone. Enough. No. Nope. Lost. Okay. Yeah. Uh, preschool toy of the year, Leap Pad by Leapfrog. Pretty sure Again? they still make these. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. So we know the preschool one, but not the actual kids one, and we were kids at the time. Were we, like, <laughs> a bit young for our age? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or they just had a better ad budget, I don't know. Uh, the electronic game of the year is Bop It Extreme. Oh, that's a yeah. banger of a toy, that. Yeah. yeah. I didn't have that, but I did have this, which is the outdoor toy of the year, Swing Ball. Yes! Yes! Oh, Andy, me and you at the... Um, oh, yeah, we, we saw a swing we ball. We went to the park last week and we saw a little girl playing with a swing ball. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I was saying so how it, I used to love it. I used to, yeah. I used to get it going as fast as I possibly could, like back and forth one way or the other, and it would invariably end with the ball striking me in the face, and I never learnt my lesson. Um, it <laughs> yeah, was just Darwinism in action, that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the craze of the year is Yu-Gi-Oh!, Yep, that yeah. sums it up yeah. really well. Yeah. Uh, the innovative toy of the year is Live Steam Train by Hornby. Oh, I've right. never a... heard of that, but I'd, mm. I'd be curious mm. to have a look. Sounds sounds quite interesting. For, for Hornby me, anyway. Steam Trains are like they they are like popular. Oh the, yeah, um, yeah. I, I used to work in a toy shop about 
five, six years after this, it was my first job. Mm. And they were the most expensive thing we sold with a super, like, wow, Hornby train sets. They were like £500. And we got shoplifted once by a guy who, he just he said, oh, can I take one down to have a look at it? He just walked out, hidden in plain sight, and we all assumed that he paid. So we just got to just walk out with a Hornby train set, and we realised half an hour later, he didn't pay for that. No one charged him. So I say we got shoplifted. We just let him leave with the most expensive Hornby train set in the store. And that man's name was Rod Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, just on the subject of um, Yu-Gi-Oh cards... Yeah. Um, which is it for some reason it's triggered something in my memory of a of an episode from two thousand and five of um All Grown Up, which is that Rugrats sequel oh, spin off yeah. thing. Where yeah. they have a whole episode where um there's kids playing with you gotta go cards. <laughs> <laughs> but they try their own I don't know why this has triggered a really specific thing in my memory but the plot of the episode is the whole school has caught you gotta go fever a role playing card game except Chucky when he finally starts playing it becomes an obsession and he's hired by Angelica who's been grounded for an excessive phone bill to do her chores in exchange for more cards and he becomes overwhelmed by the hopes of finding the rare card called the Red Mirror Dragon. <laughs> oh. Shameless. Oh my God. Absolutely shameless just, stuff. Talking about Yu-Gi-Oh! has made me have like a random flashback. I, I left primary school in the summer of 2003 and I went to a school quite far away so I wasn't with any of my friends. And so when I was saying goodbye to like one of my best friends in primary school, he was a big Yu-Gi-Oh! fan and I wasn't really, but he gave me the Blue Eyes card. Oh, Blue Eyes, White Dragon. And he was like, "Oh yeah, just take that with you." Like, just and I was just like, "Oh, what a sweet thing!" And um, we did that keep it. That was a treasured possession in two thousand and three as well. Yeah, it was a big deal to give your friend that. Um, yeah. yeah, it was nice of him. Yeah. Oh, how sweet. Yeah. Anyway, Lizzie, sorry to derail. Yeah, that sorry, so Lizzie. That's all right. Uh, trip down memory lane, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we've got two more categories to go. Uh, we've got the collectible toy of the year, which is Lord of the Rings. What, what's the toy aspect of it? I don't know. I'm guessing it's like figurines. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, little collectibles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. yeah. And finally, the toy of the year, which is Beyblades. Again. Two Again. years running. Wow. Yeah. They're so great. <laughs> yeah. I can understand that. So, yeah, it's Beyblades and Yu-Gi-Oh! at the moment. They're the big things, I yeah. guess. Ah. Yeah. And Bratz as well. Mustn't forget Bratz. Um, Can't forget Bratz, and now though. video games. Yeah, any guesses at what's coming in at number one this year? I mean, I can't just guess FIFA again. You can. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing guess, stopping you. Um, GTA, I'm sure there's a GTA this year. Um, okay. I don't know which one. Is it 3 or San Andreas? No, Vice City? San Andreas, maybe? Um, okay. I will also mm. guess the Return of the King game, or the Two Towers game, because they were both out. Okay. Um... Simpsons Hit and Run, that came out this year. Okay. Let's go, let's get into it. Alright, well, um, you guessed the Lord of the Ring games. They actually came in at number 12 and number 11, respectively. Oh, bollocks. <laughs> Very close, though. Um, so I'll start with number 10. It is, of course, FIFA 2003 by EA Sports. Yeah. Number 9, Simpsons Hit and Run. Hey. Oh, we're doing well here, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> number 8, we have iToy Play. Oh, I had that, yeah. I didn't. 
I do not have any recollection of that at all. So <laughs> it was a PS2 game, but it had a camera that yeah. could sort of see... It sort of, The game could sort of sense what you were doing. It was a bit like an early... Wii or an early, very early VR, I guess, like a Kinect, Kinect sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You could sort of like there was one where you had to wash windows, and there was one where <laughs> you had to like pick things up and put them in other places. Um, really kind of basic menial stuff. <laughs> that's, sure, that's all I could do, yeah. but um, it was amazing for the time. Yeah, yeah, you had to be there. Um, yeah. <laughs> number seven, Tom Clancy Splinter Cell. Oh yeah. Oh okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good game. Good game. Yeah. Number six, one I rented and didn't enjoy, Enter the Matrix. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Ah. I think we've still got that on the shelf somewhere, Enter the Matrix. Yeah, yeah I think it's had a bit of a, a cult following over the years, but I wasn't very into it. At number five, it is Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. So that means San Andreas is a bit higher than if San Andreas is out. Let's see. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. At number four, it is The Sims. Oh, of oh okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 Number three, Medal of Honor, Rising Sun. Oh, another one. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. At number two, definitely played this one, Need for Speed Underground. Oh, yes. Ah. See, oh, the Need for okay. Speed thing, that lasted long enough for a film to be made involving Aaron Paul. Yeah, and everybody's really? forgotten about it. <laughs> yeah. well, I am. It was like yeah. ten years ago. Aaron Paul was in a Need for Speed film. <laughs> wow! The first time you boot it off and you hear "Get Low," it's like, yeah, <laughs> you're in. <laughs> now, Andy, last year on our Christmas episode, you had a guess at Pop Idol the game. Oh, you're, you're joking! Is it this year? Well, I'm going to tell you that this year. Pop Idol is number 80, ah. which means that number one is, of course, FIFA 2004. Of course it is. Uh, so oh, Lizzie, I'm so good at that. San Andreas Sorry. must be next year then. Yeah, San Andreas must be next year then. It is 2004, but I right. don't know whether it gets number one. We'll see. Oh, I think it will. I think okay. It will. Well, thank you very much. Wonderful report as Always, we'll see if, uh, like, I think now, you know how, like, we're entering that period of the charts where, like, it's going to be X Factor as Christmas number one basically every year. I wonder if we're also going to get a situation where, like, someone's going to have to beat a FIFA game <laughs> to number one each year because it's like, oh, another FIFA number one at Christmas, is it? <laughs> um, yeah. But, well, yeah. In that sense, this kind of feels like the end of an era because it's the last time, I think where the Christmas number one isn't either an X Factor song or a charity song. Yes, this is something I'm going to discuss in okay. this episode, actually. Cool. Cool. Um, it's a thought I've not put down on paper, but is a thought I've been having as we've looked ahead to this week. So, like always, we're now going to run down the Christmas top ten. on Well, the, uh, the top ten on Christmas Day for 2003. But instead of going straight into number one, we're going to have a bit of a chat about this particular race for Christmas number one, because I don't know about you two or anybody listening, maybe you will disagree, but for me, this feels like the last actual race for Christmas number one. Yeah. Like the last proper where like there's four or five artists who are going for it 
are all releasing Christmas songs or yes. are, yeah. you know, have some kind of marketing campaign behind them where, you know, like you say, Lizzie, it's not just the X Factor or a charity single or something in response to the X Factor yes, <laughs> being number exactly. one. Where this was the last one where it felt like anybody could get to number one. It was and an even playing field, yeah. Yes, and now because of the advent of streaming, it's not quite the same either. Because mm. now if Mariah Carey happens to be first in lots of Christmas playlists, then she just gets to number one. <laughs> and it's the same yep. with Wham! and Lad Baby and whatever. So, yeah, this is a big deal. Um, this is a very big deal. So we're going to run down the top ten. Well, nine of the top ten. And then we're going to have a discussion about it. So, mm. forgive me again if my impression of generic Radio 1 chart reader doesn't, you know, doesn't quite suffice. Oh, but, go for it, Rob. You know, I really want to get, hear I'll it. I'll give it a shot. <laughs> I'll break out my Tony Blackbird if it gets really desperate. <laughs> okay. At 10, it's a brand new entry for Sugar Babes and Too Lost in You. At 9, it's down 4 for Shane Ritchie and I'm Your Man. A new entry at 8, it's Atomic Kitten with Ladies Night. At seven, down three from four, it's Shut Up by Black Eyed Peas. Number six, down two from four, it's a former number one, Leave Right Now by Will Young. Into the top five, it's a new entry for the Pop Idol finalists, Happy Christmas, War Is Over. At number four, So Exciting You Might We, Proper Crimbo by Bo Selector. <laughs> Opening the top three is last week's number one, Changes by Ozzy and Kelly Osbourne. And at number two, it's a huge new entry for The Darkness with Christmas Time, Don't Let the Bells End. But in 2003, it was not quite enough to make it to Christmas number one. So, there's some songs in here that I have zero recollection of, but I also have some songs where I'm sort of like, oh, that's a shame that didn't get to number one. But then I also have songs like I'm Your Man by Shane Ritchie, which I'm just, I'm so relieved we never we never had to talk about that. Um, but, so, was, was Crimbo in the cultural lexicon before yeah. this song? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Not, okay, not the phrase I, proper I was, crimbo. It did coin yeah, that. Yeah, I, I was young, oh, so crimbo, I yeah. wondered whether crimbo bow selector was a like an invention. No, no, no. That existed already, yeah. Okay. So, out of these that didn't get to number one, Lizzie, were you like particularly invested in any any of these songs that didn't quite make it? Well, I was a stupid kid, so I wanted proper crimbos to get to number one. And <laughs> I, re- I remember listening to this chart actually at my nan's house, and I was like, oh, bloody hell. I was like, right, I guess I'm cheering for the darkness then. And then I was like, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> just can't win. But yeah, like, do you remember a couple of years ago, I think it was 2000, I said that on the Christmas charts, there was only like two Christmas songs, and they barely cracked the top 30. And yeah, yeah, you look outside the top ten, there's loads of them. There's like Santa's List by Cliff Richard, Have a Cheeky Christmas by the yeah. Cheeky Girls, I Love Christmas by the Fast Food Rockers, 
Christmas is All Around by Billy Mack from Oh, Love they released Actually. that. I didn't know they released yeah. that as a single. Yeah. Yeah. They did. It got in the top 30. Oh. There was also one that didn't quite crack the top 40, Boom Boom slash Christmas Slide by Basil Brush. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's this huge comeback of Christmas songs. I don't know where it's, where it's come from because a couple of years ago, you would have been forgiven for thinking that it was just dead. Yeah, I think some of them were pitched a bit too early because Santa's List and Have a Cheeky Christmas both got in the top 10, but were in the top 10 last week and so have dropped out because they haven't had the push from first week sales and so they've ended up dropping back out of the top 10 because I think they've just been pitched a bit too early and so when it comes to the actual Christmas Day chart which Mm. is what people will look at they just won't feature like Cliff Richard and Cheeky Girls and such being outside the top 10 now True Mm. Yeah, yeah I don't think they ever had a chance anyway because Santa's list is awful like really boring and cheeky christmas is fun but it was never going to get number one so um yeah i don't think they really had a chance but it would have been nice to see them in the proper top 10 yeah yeah Yeah. so andy i think you've mentioned to us before maybe not on the show that you also got very much invested in this run for christmas number one yeah this uh, well this is probably the chart race not just Christmas, the chart race of all time that I remember the most, um, by far the one I've got the most memories of and was most invested in. Um, partly because it was genuinely, as we've all said, a really exciting Christmas chart. It was the last really great race to Christmas number one where there was no obvious favourite um, and there was a lot of discussion on various TV shows and radio shows about which one it might be. There was sort, I think there was daily updates coming in. Um, and the reason I know all that, the reason I was following it so closely, well, not just because it was really good, but um, it was a really tough time that was happening um, in my family life where my nana, who uh, we were all very, very close to, um, she had cancer and she was passing away at this time, like gradually. Um, And we knew it was like going to happen in Christmas week. Um, She ultimately ended up dying on Christmas Day. Um, And so it was a really sad Christmas for us, and I was only 11 years old, and I needed an escape, basically, um, like, I couldn't really process what was going on, and because I particularly couldn't process it, because Christmas means happiness to a kid, like, it's like going to Disneyland and not being happy, it's just not something that your head can compute, um, and so I couldn't really process it, so I just doubled down on the Christmas side of things, um, and I had my headphones on all the time listening to the radio and listening to chart stuff and got really overly invested in the Christmas number one race. So I could have told you that top five right off the top of my head without having to look it up. Um, the one I personally wanted to get number one was Proper proper Grimbo, because like Lizzie, I was also a stupid kid. Um, and I liked the funny <laughs> one. Um, I wasn't at all happy with the one that did get Christmas number one, um, but I just didn't really enjoyed the race for Christmas number one that year, and it was yeah a kind of personal important thing, and I think it shows the power of the charts and it shows the power of music really that it makes you feel part of something um, when you might want an escape from other things that it's just yeah it's a nice special thing that I've when I've seen this date coming in terms of our episodes it's something I've wanted to mention because it's like 
you know, whenever mm-hmm. we've talked about doing this show and looking at what was number one and stuff, my mind always goes to, oh, remember that time I was obsessed with Christmas number one in 2003? Um, so, yeah, it's sort of a defining thing for me with um, the charts. And like I say, it was the last great Christmas number one race, and that played a part in it as well. But um, for a variety of reasons, yeah, I just got really, really into this. And it was a very special thing. So it's been really nice hearing that top ten and talking about them all again. Because quite a long time ago now, 20 years ago. Um, but I still look back on it. Yeah. Um, I'm able to look back on it fondly, to be fair. You know, because it's all ancient history now. And yeah, it's a lovely thing. Yeah. I maybe Aww. slightly disagree that it's the last great one. I think there's obviously the, the other one later in the decade. But that's for a different reason. Yeah, yeah. It's a different I, kind yeah. of context. Yeah, well, I, I have mixed feelings about that because I feel okay. like it was more stage managed than anyone let yes. on at the time. Um, yeah. yeah, but Fair. but yeah, um, in terms of like like Rob said, anyone could do it. Like anything could get Christmas number one. I think this was the last great one where no one knew what it was going to be, and there was like five clear contenders. Yeah, um, this is this yeah. is like nineteen seventy three or something. Right, yeah. you just got all of mm. these like classic Christmas songs all just like there and yeah it does feel like a 70s top of the pops renaissance actually with the nature of this top 10 um and just with the amount of people that were putting singles out for Christmas um I think maybe there's a think piece in this maybe there's an article about it why why 2003 (laughs) I think in retrospect it's really shocking that the darkness didn't get it it that just seems like the stars aligned for it like it's a cracking christmas song the darkness were really popular at the time and they've got that 70s glam vibe which we in britain associate with christmas music just why did that not get it how did it not manage it um Mm. it's a huge huge shock that that doesn't get there i think i wonder if it's like the wogan effect where it's just if something gets played on the radio a lot it will just get bought up by people Maybe, yeah. Well, there was yeah. a bit of a push for the Christmas number one that we're about to discuss as the alternative Christmas number one, where it was like, oh, don't buy what everyone else is buying, buy the cool song Ooh. instead. Because it got a bit of a push from alternative radio stations and stuff. Um, so, I think we should we should get in yeah. and discuss the uh, the Christmas number one. For 2003, which we will play in full, as we always do. So, the Christmas number one for 2003 was this. Dreams in which I'm dying are the best 
best I've ever had I find it hard to tell you I find it hard to take When people run in circles It's a very, very This is Mad World by Michael Andrews and Gary Jules. Released as the only single from the Donnie Darko film soundtrack and as the only single from Gary Jules' second studio album titled Selling Snake Oil for Wolf Tickets, Mad World is the first single to be released by either Michael Andrews or Gary Jules in the UK. It is the first and only single by either of them to get to number one. The song is a cover of the song originally performed by Tears for Fears, which reached number three in the UK in 1982. Mad World was originally recorded and released in 2001, but was not released as an official single until 2003. The song went straight in at number one as a brand new entry, knocking Ozzy and Kelly Osbourne off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for three weeks. In its first week at number one, when it became Christmas number one, it sold 228,000 copies, beating competition from the songs that you heard earlier. In its second week at the top, it sold 167,000 copies in a week where there were no new entries to the top 40. And in its third and final week at the top, it sold 46,000 copies, beating competition from This Groove by Victoria Beckham, which got to number three, Bring It On by Alistair Griffin, which got to number five, and I Won't Change You by Sophie Ellis-Bexter, which got to number nine. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Mad World dropped one place to number two. It then initially left the charts in April 2004, but re-entered the charts again in 2004 for a second time, 2007, 2010 and 2012. The song was certified platinum in the UK in January 2004. So, it beat the darkness to number one. So... Andy, have you forgiven it over time? It also beat both Selector <laughs> to number one, but have you forgiven it over time? I have, because, you know, 
um, the great thing about the charts is that it's never really an injustice because the people get what they buy. The people get what they voted for as number one. So, you know, fine. I can accept the result. Um, I don't hold a grudge against it. At the time when I listened to the song and knew it was in the running for number one, and especially when it got number one, my reaction was kind of like, what? Really? Like... This is fine, um, but I don't get it, to be honest. I don't get the fuss. And my feelings haven't changed, I'm afraid. Um, That's still how I feel about this song. I don't dislike it. I want to make that clear, that I actually think it's all right. It's decent. It's um, a very imaginative cover of a very different original song from Tears for Fears. Um, But I much prefer the Tears for Fears version. And this is... I, I kind of get what it's going for, and I know that it's more up your street, Rob, um, than mine in terms of like the kind of tone that it's going for and what its reinterpretation of the lyrics mean. Um, but I just find it bland. I just, I just think it's a little bit insipid and dull, to be honest, um, and not at all appropriate for Christmas. And okay, if it's people, you know, going for the kind of alternative choice instead of the darkness, then that's fine. But what I want from Christmas is just a proper nice big bop. Um, I'm uncomplicated in my Christmas tastes. And um, this sort of stands out to me as like, oh, no, 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 no. This is not the sort of thing I want at number one at Christmas. Um, yeah. And even aside from the Christmas thing, just as a song, it's just not something I would ever really choose to sit and listen to. Like, again, it's not that I dislike it. It's just sort of beige. Um I think that it needs more development throughout. It's too thin. It's too quiet. Um, I do like that the, the sort of fading mad world bit at the end where it gets a little bit bigger and there's some reverb on the voices. Um, and I do like that kind of sense of space that it feels like it's being sung in a massive empty room. Um, but those are kind of my only things that I find sort of cool about it. Um, I've not seen Donnie Darko and that might make a difference. Um, maybe it's better in context and maybe I would get the fuss about it then like I say it's fine it's not like my least favourite Christmas number one that we've had so far and and there's plenty worse to come Um, but it's not for me not for me this one really it's just bland yeah Um, yeah I I don't love this admittedly like I think it's better than both Mandy and Changes from last week and I'll admit that I haven't seen Donnie Darko, so I don't have that additional context to go off. But yeah, overall, like you, Andy, I just found this to be a bit of a chore to listen to after some time with it this week. I think my biggest problem with this is probably... Is it Gary Jules is singing on this? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I just find his voice a little bit too simpering and not really strong enough to hold my attention for the song's runtime so much so that I almost want to drown him out so we can hear a bit more of the instrumental but it's still just there it's right at the forefront you can't really ignore it and like there's a similarly sparse piano ballad coming up in 2004 which I like a lot more than this purely because to me the performance of that song is much more memorable and affecting. And I also think of things like, I don't know, Hide and Seek by Imogen Heap. I think it is possible to strip everything back and still have something that's engaging and emotional. But I just this doesn't really do that for me. Like, you've got the, the very minimal production on here. 
And while I'll admit that there are a few nice touches here and there, I can't help but compare this to the Tears for Fears original and find this to be quite dull in comparison because that original is so much more exciting and vivid but also tense and anxiety inducing which is a, a quality common among those big 80s Cold War pop hits like this sits comfortably next to you know 99 Red Balloons and Two Tribes songs which are at once thematically tied to that period but also terminally present and, and like if I was being really unfair I'd accuse this of being patient zero for the trend of 80s and 90s pop songs being stripped down to the bare minimum and slapped onto adverts and trailers yeah. to you know emphasize the seriousness of it all like sure they didn't make this song with that intention but the use of this in the in the Gears of War trailer in 2006 is considered by quite a few people to be the start of something they call trailerization. And that effect clearly isn't their fault, but it does make it a lot harder to look at this song without being reminded of a decade's worth of this exact sort of thing being put out by unimaginative ad execs and movie industry types. And even when I do manage to look past that, I still just find this this doesn't move me all that much, nor does it excite or unnerve me in the way that the original does, which is a shame. Like, yeah, I'll say that we've covered much worse recently, but yeah, this one isn't one I can see myself going back to very often. I think you've got a real shout there about the sort of John Lewis Christmas music, that this is the genesis point for that. I think I think that's a really good shout. Um, that we are a good five or six years away from that starting, but this is probably what they were going for, um, mm. and definitely that trailerization of songs. One hundred percent. It's it's such a cliche now that um, I always just laugh at it when I see it. One of my favorites recently was when I saw the trailer for John Wick Four, and that did the oh, solemn God. piano thing with Seasons in the Sun. Um, no. And it just didn't work at all. It was laughable. <laughs> Apparently the film's really good, but that was a laughable trailer. Um, yeah, I think you've got a real shout with that. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like the most unsuitable 80s song that you could do. Like, I'm gonna do, do, do. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's doing the crap. <laughs> God. <laughs> oh, God, oh, you just brought that back into my mind. Um, you can dance if you want to. You can leave your friends behind. Your friends behind. Come on, Eileen. <laughs> the other one, Lizzie, that I was sort of thinking of was um, Disturbed doing the Sound of Silence for Gears oh, of War. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. That's another prominent example um, of uh, this trailerization, if you will. Um, well, this is an odd one. It's rare that I think we disagree um, on this show, I think we all generally have similar-ish opinions about various songs. I can think of times where we've disagreed, like Rolling, for example, Ugh. where that was vaulted and also piehole and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so this could make for an interesting next few minutes. Um, if you couldn't tell everyone who's listening, my feelings about this are sort of at the other end of the spectrum 
to uh, Lizzie and Andy. Like, I don't think this is, like, one of my favourite songs ever or anything like that. But, um, so, to talk about the original for a second, the Tears for Fears version, um, I love the Tears for Fears version. I think if we were discussing that, um, I'd just say I'm putting it in the vault right now and then whatever I said afterwards would be relatively immaterial. You know, it like you were saying, Lizzie, it was written during a particularly fraught period of the Cold War and you can really feel it in those icy synths and the juddery arrangement and the sudden switches in atmosphere. I think it has a distinctly British sense of paranoia of that era oh, yeah. as well. The kind of listlessness and disaffection amongst the youth that is so prominent in the pop music of uh, Margaret Thatcher's like first term. It also kind of reminds me of things like Ghost Town, just like you know that kind of yeah, yeah like windy... do nothing as well, yeah. Yeah, it's like the, you know that kind of windy, kind of cold soundscape that um, Ghost Town opens with. Yeah, yeah, um, and just the general sense of like eeriness that kind of hangs over it, and I think that Mad World has the same feel and like you were saying two tribes um those kinds of songs from around that period really really stick out um because i think that the original is written you know within the context of kids growing up in a world where they weren't sure if they were going to see tomorrow before it was blown up Mm. you know like because i mean i speak to my parents about it sometimes and i think you know history has kind of not erased it but you know because nothing really happened with the cold war it was like oh what was all that fuss about? But the threat of nuclear Armageddon was <laughs> was pretty real. Like you know, oh, yeah. it was all it, it was an ever present thing. And I think people who didn't grow up in that generation, like myself, you know, we've had to be told this, and we have to pick it. I mean, like the of all the horror films I've seen down the years, none of them have ever scared me more than Threads. Same. Threads is the scariest film yeah. I have ever seen. It oh. really is. I, I Just, wish I'd never watched it. Nightmarish, horrible. It's yeah. horrible. Really, really fantastic movie, and like there's so much that is so closely aesthetically tied with that film and that era, and Mad World slots really nicely into that. I think it's a great, great track. Um, so with that in mind, I think what I really appreciate about the Gary Jules and Michael Andrews version is that it transposes that kind of British Cold War paranoia and puts it in the context of... American middle-class suburban paranoia in the late 1990s, which has a different kind of listlessness and apathy and paranoia living underneath it. You know, like where the UK 1980s paranoia um, of Tears for Fears was this kind of harsh, immediate thing brought on by the threat of nuclear weapons, the paranoia underneath the late 90s, early 2000s American middle-class suburban thing is a kind of opioid dazed paranoia that seeps through very slowly this this kind of general eerie feeling that something isn't quite right um like obviously as everybody knows Mad World was on the soundtrack to Donnie Darko so a lot of the aesthetics and images from that film um, they come into my mind, and so my opinion of Mad World is informed by its relationship with that movie, because the thing about Donnie Darko is that obviously everybody remembers it for the rabbit costume and for the voices and for the the weird thing with the plane and the, the time loop thing 
And you know, like the, the the sort of like the the kind of juvenile perspective that it has is like, what if that obnoxious, mouthy, know-it-all kid in your class at school was actually Jesus on a sacrificial mission to save the universe? You know, because the whole thing is like Donnie Darko has to accept that he needs to sacrifice himself in order to reset the universe and send it back to where it was and all of that to kind of reverse the events of the film. And the whole thing is kind of like a coming-of-age sci-fi thing. But I think watching it really recently, just in preparation for this, I think what it's really about is trying to explain why American teenagers in the 90s were so the way they were and why things like Columbine and Woodstock 99 happened why like apathetic and bored teenagers do the crazy shit that they do but mm. also why adults were kind of bored of themselves and scared of their children because i think that there are a lot of texts from the 90s that observe the the shadows of suburbia and of the darkness and the unhappiness and the dissatisfaction that resides behind all the white picket fences and the bright smiles and the ostensibly idyllic existences that play out away from all the chaos of the big cities. You know, everybody's got a perfect lawn and everybody's got sprinklers and big custom-built houses that are, like, 60 years old and they've got, like, you know, wings to the house, you know, because the doorways are central and the, the stairway goes up to six bedrooms and they've got three kitchens and a massive garden because that's what American houses are like. Because by January 2001, which is when Donnie Darko was originally released uh, at film festivals and when its soundtrack was originally recorded, America had gone so long without being invaded as a, as a country, you know, like, or, like, having wars fought on its own soil, it, and without ever needing to assemble an army en masse in panic, you know, like, the idea of joining the army was, like, a voluntary thing that you could do, and obviously there's loads of propaganda that goes towards making sure that the numbers stay up, but a lot of the wars that America fought between, well, in modern history have all been fought in the east they've all been fought in you know like what i mean obviously like you know the cuban missile crisis like that's a long time ago now and even vietnam is beginning to fade into the rearview mirror and so i think america at large started to wonder whether the threat and discontent that they still felt for some reason because teenagers were still unhappy and adults still felt like they lacked a purpose despite all the heaps of social change that had, that had occurred over the years, um, I think they started to wonder whether, like, the threat and the discontent was coming from within. And so, like, you know, the, 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 you know it's like the calls coming from inside the house sort of thing, where it's like, so, you know, the, the American middle classes and the religious right, they point at violent video games or extreme music or drugs or the satanic panic... And you start to get films like Donnie Darko, but also films like The Virgin Suicides and Ghost World and American Beauty and Fargo. And to an extent, um, Starship Troopers, which is a future hyper parodical look at that whole thing. And things like The Blair Witch Project, which is about urban legends and darkness lurking in woods behind so many towns and historic villages in uh, in america and you get tv shows like twin peaks and the x-files which work to 
interrogate and shine a light on the mysteries and the evil that sort of lingers in the oxycodone induced haze of the american middle classes and it's about the you know the, all these texts that are really about the slow death of white american exceptionalism and it all starts to feel a bit like one big adam curtis documentary and i always think about that line um bright and early for the daily races going nowhere um and i think that position in history is where the gary jules version of Mad Men is written from this kind of complacent but uncomfortable, everyday, convenienced but unhappy, you know, of having roughly the same day repeat over and over, but with this sense that every repeated day brings society at large and you yourself closer to downfall of whatever downfall that may be, this sense of degradation. Um, And I think this really emerges through that slightly dazed, uncomfortable piano arrangement and i love the delicate quiver of panic in gary jules's voice um this this sense that the way that he performs the lyrics feel like they suit this context really 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 well because on all he's really done is kind of stripped away all of the the harsh icy coldness from the original mad world and instead he's added in you know like with michael andrews as well like these ambient soundscapes especially towards the end where he says the word mad world and it kind of echoes around him but not yeah. in a way where it's like mad world mad world or anything like that it's when he says mad world it's like this this cloud of dust just kind of emanates from mad world and it also happens where he sings the lines like enlarge in your world towards the end um and the way the words kind of twist and mutate um really really uncomfortable um compositionally i can see why like you andy that this would leave people feeling a bit bereft because you know it it is very minimal and the development is it's restrained I think and so like if you don't buy into the atmosphere and the aesthetics of the song then the arrangement isn't going to leave much to chew on because I feel like the 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 actual substance of the song it comes through in the music's relationship with the aesthetics and its surrounding you know it's like it's um it's sort of like surrounding aura if you will but it, in the end, it is just the guy with a piano, and if you're not into that vibe, then it's not going to pull you in, because I don't think it tries to necessarily do that. It just kind of, it just sort of goes along and does its thing, and if you're not into its thing, then it there isn't going to be a moment in the song halfway through that's going to make you go, ah, now I see where you're going with this, because like, the, you know, and I don't think it's the case of like, once you've listened to the first minute, you've heard it all. I do think there are little tricks down the road, but there's no sudden gear shift that would make you go, whoa, I think about this totally differently now. Um, And I also can see why people would feel the same way about this as I do whenever Gary Lightbody opens his mouth, which is just like, oh, he's doing his thing again, isn't he? Where, like, he has that one voice and he uses it for everything he does and oh well, like, you know, and it's like, if you're not into that, then you never, it's like, if you don't like a couple of Snow Patrol songs, it's like, well, they all sound like that, they do their thing, 
So, you know, it's, if, if, it's like if you're not into like the first minute of this, it's like, well, it's not changing. Um, I only found out recently this week that there is an alternative version which kind of has 90s down-tempo trip-hoppy drums behind it the whole time, and I don't get that, um, really. I prefer the version that was released as a single, but I think despite its slight shortcomings, I think this captures that unease that lies at the heart of the American middle-class existence at the point right before 9-11, which kind of smashed all the middle classes back into attack mode and gave them a focus and a focal point. Miles away from the cities, you know, like, it still restored some order. Where, like, I think if you watch something like Fahrenheit 9-11, the Michael Moore documentary, where it's like, there are people who are millions and millions of well not millions of miles away but you know like hundreds of miles away from big cities because america is so spaced out and so it sprawls so far that there were people in small villages in backwater towns in the sticks who were worried that they were going to be the victim of terrorist attacks it was like you know that that was the sudden shift from like kind of drifting through life a little bit oh all the wars are happening somewhere else to then suddenly like bam like you know all of a sudden there's a, there's a disaster movie happening in new york and we can't think about life in the same way that we used to you know 9-11 kind of changed everything um which i find kind of ironic because apologies for the spoilers but the film is over 20 years old donnie darko begins with a plane smashing into a building or well, part of a plane mm. anyway which i find kind of ironic but um yeah i don't like I don't think that this is like absolutely amazing, but I think that its shortcomings are more than made up for by the feeling that it it gives me. Um, and so I guess you two are either of you going to pie hole this? Um, maybe. I'm. I, oh, I don't know. Probably not. Actually, probably not going to pie hole it. No. No, me me neither. Just only because we've seen that there's been worse and yeah. also like the the trailerization thing i can't i can't really blame them for it it's just an unfortunate side effect yeah you can only view it through um like your perspective and stuff and that's completely i totally get where you're coming from and i agree mm. to be honest I, um, I really like yeah i really like applaud all of your points there to be honest rob like it, it, it it's i don't quite agree just because i just think it doesn't land with me as strongly as it does with you so although i agree to a large extent with what you're saying it just doesn't like capture me as much as it has with you uh but you know i you know very much respect your opinion on it and certainly when you know expressed with that level of conviction um yeah, yeah. so I, i'm i'm definitely feeling kinder towards it than I was. So to that extent, somewhat mission accomplished. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say the same to you two as well, because as much as I don't agree either, I Mm. totally see why you could just turn this on and be like, because I'm the way I'm talking about it, it feels like it needs all of this extracurricular, extra textual context for me to appreciate it the way that I do. Which could be a criticism of the song itself. Yeah, and I th- I do think it kind of does need that. Like I don't really think there's any getting away from that, and I would I would put that as a criticism. Um, mm. I kind of question whether it would have landed as hard with you if not for Donnie Darko, um, mm. which yeah. again I would count well, as I only, a criticism. Um, 
To be honest, I only watched Donnie Darko like a week ago for the first time, um, oh, just in preparation for this. But I think that I already liked this a lot anyway, because I remember years ago speaking with my dad about this, uh, and obviously he's old enough to remember the original. And I remember us having a conversation where it was like the lyrics of the original version, we we were really impressed with how the the lyrics of the original had been transposed over to this new atmosphere without really feeling like they were out of place. We were both struck by it um, years after this. I can't remember why we were talking about it. I remember being at least 20 when I was discussing this with my dad. So it's happened within the last 10 years. Um, but yeah, it's one of those where like before this week, I was going to come on and talk about like, you know, how I appreciated that it took the, the lyrics and vague melodies of the original and then applied them to a totally new context i always feel the same about comfortably numb by scissor sisters where it's like you know that's a great the cover, cover. yeah that's it's great. a really really great reimagination of a song from years gone by and i feel the same way um about this but i also agree with you two in the sense that like if you're not like you know if it doesn't have that extra textual thing for me i it would be stood on the edge but would not make it into the vault but I am going to put it in. So, do we have any further thoughts on Mad World? Just no. one more thing from me, because I yeah. do find it very interesting that a lot of your analysis, Rob, is about American suburban life and and how this sort of plays into it. But this didn't really do all that much in America. It no, was it big didn't. in Europe. I find but, it so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the fact that as well, that when it was originally released, everyone was just sort of like, oh, Okay. I mean, to be honest as well, Donnie Darko as well, it bombed it did. at the box yeah. office. It made, like, no money. It was only through DVD sales and word of mouth. Yeah, and definition this, of a cool classic, yeah. Yes, yeah. and this, like, insane online fandom. I did not know the extent of the online fandom that this film has, but, oh, my God, there are entire websites dedicated to just, like, the book in the film that they read to explain the theory of the time travel in it. And then there's like a director's cut where like the book becomes more important. And now everything's explained on wiki pages and fandom wiki pages and things like that. And I just, I was staggered looking at, you know, like after watching the film last week and sort of looking it up on the internet and stuff. And apparently, yeah, through DVD sales, there was a bigger push for this song to be released. And so it was like, ah, this song that plays at the end of the film when everybody's waking up from the dream, like, you know, is that like going to be released as a single or anything or and then eventually it you know it they got word of it um the label bosses and whatnot and they were like ah yeah let's give this a go and see how it does and it does really well in lots of places and not so well in others yeah fair okay so it's time for a new feature on hits 21 it is born to runner up where we've decided um if you probably didn't know this, we've decided to uh, refine our order for the Christmas episodes. Because I think, to be honest, we were sort of listening back to our Christmas episodes. And we were sort of like, we talk about the year that's just gone. And we're like, just repeating points that we've said already. So, um, we thought we'd cut that bit. Because you already kind of know how we feel about 2003. And add in this new section 
uh, based on a Simpsons joke. It wouldn't be Hits 21 without a Simpsons reference now, would it? Um, <laughs> Andy, you've taken the lead on organising this. I don't know if you want to tell everybody what Born to Runner-Up is. Yes, yeah, so we had... I don't. It wasn't me who came up with the original idea. I think it was something we came up with between us where we decided because... We, we always kind of moan and groan at the stuff that got beat to number one. Um, we thought, what if we look at all of the number two songs for this year, um, and instead of doing the crazy thing of launching a second podcast called Hits 21 Mark 2, where we look at every single number two, we thought, no, we're not, we're not <laughs> going to do that. We thought we will just recognise one number two single um, that gets our Born to Runner-Up trophy um, that we never quite got to discuss on the programme, but deserves recognition. And so what we did was um, I took your votes and my own votes privately for every song that got uh, number two this year. I asked for your top five, top ten, whatever you like, number two singles from this year. I have tabulated the votes and it's come out like this. Rob and Lizzie don't know this, by the way. This is genuine surprise (laughs) for them. So in fifth place is Pretty Green Eyes by Ultra Beat. Aww. In a shared second, third, and fourth place, so we have a three-way tie between oh, wow. Scandalous by Mystique, oh. I Believe in a Thing Called Love by The Darkness, and Danger High Voltage by Electric Six. Um, okay. I adore Danger High Voltage. I'm glad that made it in there. Um, but actually, number one really, really ran away with it. All three of us named it as our favourite of the year. The Born to Runner-Up Trophy 2003 goes to Cry Me a River by Justin Timberlake. Yes! yes. Uh, which we all absolutely loved. Um, so yes, the first of uh, an annual tradition there, hopefully. Well done, Justin Timberlake. We've never quite managed to cover you on the show, but there's a little bit of recognition. <laughs> yeah. Aww. Well, Andy, we're going to stay with you, actually, because now it is time to do the bit that I think everybody looks forward to, which is to name our bottom five songs of the year and our top ten songs of the year, and we crown a new winner for Song of the Year. So, first of all, we have to get the negatives out of the way. The bottom five songs of 2003 that we have covered on this podcast, what are they? Yeah, so our fifth worst song of the year, I actually think this is a bit of a shock, Um, I think it's really harsh, our fifth worst song of the year is Stop Living the Lie by David Snedden. Um, I didn't think it was that bad, Um, I I liked it. I think the worst thing I felt about it was it was boring, but as I thought that about Mad World. (laughs) Well, it got an average score of 5.3, which is not that bad, I wouldn't have seen it in the bottom five in most of the years. Wow, a, a score of over half being in the bottom five. Yeah, has been a yeah good it's been year. a very strong year. Yeah. Well, it's a big drop down from there because the next one got an average score of 4.0 between all three of us. We all gave it a four, and it's Spirit in the Sky by Gareth Gates and the Cumars. <laughs> oh, that was oh, rubbish. Dear, Gareth. <laughs> At number three, with an average score of 3.7, and put in the pie hole by me, but not Robin Lizzie. It's Never Gonna Leave Your Side by Daniel Bedingfield. Rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> Our second worst song of the year, with an average score of 3.2, and put in the pie hole by all three of us, it's Mandy by Westlife. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love how this is just like such a race to the bottom now. <laughs> yeah, no surprises for guessing what is our worst song of the year. It's a big drop though, with an average score of 2.3 between Oof. all three of us and all put in the pie hole. The worst song of the year is, of course, Changes by Kelly and Ozzy Osbourne. Of course. Oh, Absolute dear. rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Getting in just at the end. What a load of shite. Um, yes. So, we have to look, <laughs> thankfully now, at the opposite end of that table, and we're going to do our top ten songs of the year, our ten favourite number ones, and I think the competition is going to be high this year. I think yeah. the number one is pretty obvious, if anybody's been really paying attention, but I think that like the I think there were some songs that are gonna miss out on the top ten that are gonna be it's cruel, I think. So yeah. take it take it away. Well some of the songs that have missed the top ten, an honourable mention to Hole in the Head by Sugar Babes, which got number eleven. Um, Beautiful yeah. by Christina Aguilera, Where is the Love, Black Eyed Peas, um they all missed the top ten. And we liked all of them, um, on the whole. So yeah. Our tenth Highest rated song of the year with an average score of 7.5 is Leave Right Now by Will Young. Oh, he got in! Yeah, oh, just squeaked right in at the end. end. Yeah. Excellent yeah. stuff, good. Yeah. <laughs> Our ninth highest rated song of the year, um, again with this average score of 7.5, but it's higher because me and Rob put this in the vault. It is Crash the Wedding by Busted. Oh. Which, yeah, I'm happy. I'm quite pleased about that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> At number eight, with an average score of 7.7 and put in the vault um, by no one, actually, is Are You Ready For Love by Elton John. Actually, that's not true. I put that in the vault, but Are You Ready For Love by Elton John. Oh, um, yeah. That's appropriate as well. You saw him this week, didn't you? I did. He didn't do that, unfortunately, but he has a lot of hits. Really? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, he did both the other number ones that he's had in the 21st century, one of which was Sorry Seems To Be The Hardest Word, and... Sadly, not featuring Blue. Um, and the other one, which uh, we'll get around to at some point. Anyway, at number seven on this week, uh, on this year's chart, put in the vault by Rob and Lizzie, but not by me. Average score of 7.7. It's Loneliness by Tom Craft. Hell yeah. Ooh. Yeah, celebrated because I uh, celebrated afterwards by uh, me finding it on 12-inch in a charity shop. <laughs> So, this is where it starts to get quite tight. Um, not much separating the rest of these. At number six, with an average score of 8.2 and put in the vault by all three of us, it's Be Faithful by Fat Man Scoop featuring hey. the Cockley Clan. Yeah. And if you don't like it, then all the chicken heads, be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Into our top five. Um, at number five for the year, with an average score of 8.3, put in the vault by Rob and Lizzie. It's Breathe by Blue Cantrell featuring Sean Paul. Yeah. Nice high placement for that one. Yeah. yeah. And I'm quite surprised, but happily surprised, that this one made it so high at number four with an average score of 8.7, put in the vault by Robin Lizzie. It's Slow by Kylie Minogue. Oh. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. All right then. Yeah. Happy with and this so, so far. It's our top three. All three of these were put in the vault by all three of us. We all absolutely loved all of these songs. Wow, stacked. Um, and I think I, we all called at the start of the year that it was going to be these three um, were going to be our top three. Just what oh. order they were going to take. 
So, with an average score of 8.7, but putting the vault by all three of us, which puts it ahead of Kylie. At number three, it's Bring Me to Life by Evanescence. <laughs> yes! <laughs> oh my god, I'm so glad that got in the top three. <laughs> yeah. And at number two, with an average score of 9.3, really, it would have won any other year, uh, with an yeah. average score of 9.3, it's Crazy in Love by Beyonce featuring Jay-Z. God, that is... I mean, it's good, but it's also heartbreaking because I'm looking ahead to future years and I think both of Beyonce and Evanescence would have won in future years that we're going to get to. Yeah. Even Kylie might have done. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. But there was really no competition. Um, the number one could not possibly have been beaten because it had an average score of 10. All three of us gave it a perfect wow. 10. The very first song to ever achieve that on this podcast. So I'm bringing on an imaginary um, version of the Sugar Babes to hand over the trophy this year. This year's, oh, thanks, girls. <laughs> this year's <laughs> 21 record of the year, our favourite song of the year, goes to All the Things She Said by Tattoo. Hey. Yes. Absolutely incredible seismic piece of pop music, which um, we all talked about at length how fantastic it was, but I'm particularly happy to see it there. It means so much to me, that song. It's an incredible, incredible song. Um, So yes, Tattoo take the crown for this year. Just to point out that once again, um, still, four years in, every song that's won our record of the year has been entirely by female artists. Um, and it's our third out of four by a girl group, actually, that's been at the top. Um, and yeah, a great, great chart this year. What a top ten that was. Really, really strong. Yeah, Absolutely. so well done to everyone. Yeah. You couldn't accuse us of uh, being anti-pop, could you? With uh, three girl groups of uh, having our favourite songs of each year. Wonderful. Well, um... That's it for this week's episode, and that's it for 2003. Um, Thank you so much for listening as we've covered the year. When we come back, um, we'll actually have a little bonus episode for you next time, (gasps) because 2003 marked the end of an era in British pop when S Club 7, S Club, called it a day. And so to mark that occasion in 2003, and also as well to give our own little tribute to Paul. Um, We are going to be watching and covering Miami 7 um, as a little special (laughs) bonus episode for you. I'm going to sit down and watch all episodes of it um, just to, like, for the first time since I was a kid. Like, I haven't watched them recently. And we're just going to sit and discuss them and have a laugh. And also, um, the week that we recorded this podcast was also the final episode of Succession, and I'm pretty sure, Lizzie, that one of the writers from Succession made their start on Miami 7. No. Yes, they did, which I actually yeah. found out in an article by a writer called Robert Oliver. You may have heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I only included that in the article because you told me. So <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so it felt like a perfect time to do it. When we get back to covering the charts, we're going to be covering the period between the 1st of January and the 21st of February, 2004. Wow. I should say that for the first two weeks of 2004, Gary Jules was still at number one. So technically we'll be starting from mid-January 
But in terms of the news that we'll be covering and the films and all of that stuff, we just consider 2004 a fresh start. So thank you very much for listening to all our 2003 episodes. We'll see you first in Miami and then in 2004. See you there. See you.